0: And we're going to be reading tonight, uh, beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you would grab a Bible and turn over to that place, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and uh, we'll begin our, uh, our time and our thinking from uh, this part of Scripture. What we've been doing at this time over the last several weeks on Wednesday nights is to try to think about uh, some ways we can grow spiritually, especially in this time where uh, things are in a lot of upheaval and we've got a lot of things going on things have changed. Uh, in many ways, and so we're thinking about what can we focus on to grow. And uh, I thought in light of that, that it would do good for us uh, to think in some ways about uh, battles that we need to fight and are fighting uh, throughout our daily lives. And so uh, to introduce that, I wanted to go here to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and look at uh, something Paul says here that I think will kind of spark our uh, our study tonight. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 10, he says, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have—if I have forgiven anything—has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. So we are not ignorant of Satan's designs. There are several implications in that statement. Uh, One is that Satan has a plan. A typical way in which he works—a design. He has schemes. Paul says in another place. One implication is that Satan is trying to outsmart us. He says specifically in verse 11, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. And in response to that, that goal of Satan and the plans of Satan, God has given us information about Satan's designs so that we are not going to be outsmarted. Because he says there in verse 11, we are not ignorant of his designs. We have information, we have truth that will help us fight Satan. And the other implication is that There are specific situations in which Satan will try to employ his tactics to cause us to sin. That's the goal, to cause us to sin and do wrong. For example, Paul is talking about a situation where he and perhaps the Corinthians would be tempted not to forgive and not to move on. And he says that's a way Satan would attack us. In this situation, we know his designs and that's one of his designs. So as we grow spiritually, part of the battle is going to be fighting temptation. Satan is going to try to outsmart us and distract us and pull us away from our commitment to Jesus. And so it seemed to me that it would be worth our time to examine the ways the devil works. And my contention tonight, in light of what Paul says here about his designs or his schemes, is that the devil has certain ways that he really likes to work. We can trace those methods and those goals, and I want to draw your attention to a number of them, especially the idea of how Satan likes to lay the groundwork for when he tempts us to do wrong. So we're going to call these tonight uh, the devil's greatest hits. That is, the, the ways that he typically attacks us and has had tremendous success attacking people throughout the centuries. And as we look at those things, we can learn how he's going to address and attack us today. Our goal in what we're studying tonight, is that we can learn to resist the devil. James promises us if we resist the devil, he'll flee from us. So if God has promised that with every temptation he's made a way of escape, that we'll be able to bear it, we want to know how can we bear it, how can we resist. We want to know just who we're fighting and what he's going to do. So the question we're going to answer tonight is, how does the devil typically attack? And I want to give you five different methods that are the greatest hits of Satan uh, to show us what he typically does to attack us. First of all, he offers something we desire. Now, this is the prototypical style of temptation. This is Eve with the fruit. This is Gehazi with Naaman's gold. This is David with Bathsheba. This is the idea. We have something we want, and Satan offers it to us, particularly offers it to us in a way that we're not allowed to have it. Let's go over to James chapter 1. James talks about this idea in temptation. James chapter 1, and he explains precisely what's happening when we are tempted and what Satan is after in that. James chapter 1, we're going to read here verse 12, James 1 and verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. First, he says, God is not tempting you. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. It's not God's fault when we sin and God's not the author of that sin. Instead, he says that the sin originates or comes from within us. Verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So that desire is unique to us in the sense that not everybody is going to be tempted in the same way by the same things that we are. It's not unique in the sense that nobody else understands or has anything like it, but it is unique in the sense that it may be something that appeals to me that doesn't appeal to you. But that desire that I have, Satan lures me by it. And he says specifically there in verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We are offered what we want. Now, sometimes it's a perversion of what is appropriate. Sometimes it's that we're offered something we can't have like someone else's wife or someone else's money. Sometimes we're offered something we can't have yet. So we want the blessings of hard work. We want the reputation and the salary and all the things that associate with hard work, but we can't have it yet. Or we want the fruit of commitment, but we don't have it yet. This is the, the idea that you can have it all if Satan offers it to you just in a way that's not the way it should be. This is when Jesus is taken up by Satan and offered all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. So it's important to say that the idea that something we desire is that the desire itself is not condemned. The issue is when the desire conceives. So he says in verse 15, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. So what does that look like? If this is one of the devil's greatest hits, what are are some of the times he has employed the luring by our desire tactic? Well, it looks like Ahab, the king, wanting Naboth's vineyard. And Naboth tells him, no, you can't have my vineyard. And Ahab is consumed with desire for the vineyard. He sulks and whines, and ultimately he allows his wife Jezebel to kill Naboth to get it. This looks like Amnon, the son of David, with his half-sister Tamar, and he becomes consumed with desire for his half-sister. He knows he can't have her, and yet he fixates on her and obsesses about her, and ultimately he ends up tricking her and forcing himself on her. This looks like David with Bathsheba, that he is so consumed with desire and so inconsiderate about consequences that he ends up killing her husband and taking her as his wife and trying to cover his own tracks. The one that I'm thinking of right now because it's going to be in our daily reading tomorrow is, is this is like Balaam who is so desperate and hungry for Balak's money that he can't even notice he's talking to a donkey. He is just hungry to do wrong. It seems to me that when we know that the devil's greatest hits involve offering something we desire, that we need to be aware that our desires, when we feed them and focus on them, can lead us to do unbelievable acts, things that we would have never imagined we would do. And particularly, those examples that I've just mentioned are about people who, because they don't turn away from the desire, but they're enticed by it, and they continue to focus on it, end up doing things they shouldn't do. So Satan attaches happiness to that desire. He focuses our attention on it and convinces us that we cannot be happy without it. And that leads us to the second of the devil's greatest hits. That is, he makes us feel unhappy. We've been doing a lot of reading lately in our daily devotionals in the wilderness wandering section of the Old Testament. And in that era, there is a tremendous spirit of discontentment among the people. They are unhappy Continually, Wherever they are, whatever's going on, they find something to be unhappy about. I want you to go with me to 1 Corinthians 10 and see what Paul says about them there. 1 Corinthians 10. What Paul does here is say, I want you to be sure you draw the lessons you need to be learning from that era. As you study this, this time, think about what you should be getting and what you should be applying to your own lives. So it's a good reminder for those of us who are studying this uh, regularly that there are some things we need to learn and apply to ourselves, not just study. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. that you may be able to endure it. So Paul's point is that while all of the Jews came out of Egypt and all of them passed through the Red Sea, he says specifically most of them displeased God. And that's why their bodies littered the desert. That's why they didn't get to go into the promised land because they displeased God. So there is a tremendous temptation to read these stories and be critical of the people. And to say, how could these people receive so many great things from God, be led by God, have the presence of God in this, this visual symbol of the cloud, and the pillar of cloud, and the pillar of fire? How could they do all of that and not respond rightly to God? Why can't they just be happy? But there's a danger in that attitude from us. The danger is that we'll begin to fail to see that we're supposed to learn here. In verse 6, he says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. So these are things that we need to learn from. So what should we learn? What's the point of these stories? Well, verse 7 says, don't be idolaters. Verse 8 says, don't indulge in sexual immorality. Verse 9 says, don't put Christ to the test. And verse 10 says, don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. In particular, it seems when you read these stories, that when the people start to get unhappy, when they encounter any kind of obstacle or difficulty, they are much more likely to reject God. And so they grumble and they put that burden on Moses and on God. There are some things that are blatant and obvious. He talks about sexual immorality and idolatry and testing Christ. Grumbling seems like a smaller thing, but it is when the people start grumbling that they say, let's go back to Egypt. Let's get a new leader. Let's stone Joshua and Caleb. Grumbling leads to the golden calf. Grumbling becomes the atmosphere in which sexual immorality and idolatry become, well, they seem pretty normal. So, While the devil often offers us things we want, there is more. He also wants to unsettle us. He convinces us that we don't have enough. Things aren't going great. We deserve better. This isn't fair. Maybe we look at other people and what they have. Maybe we compare ourselves to the past and who we used to be and what we used to have and used to be like. It is in that context that he then offers us evil. And what he says when he offers us that evil is This will make you feel better. So if we know that the devil typically attacks by making us feel unhappy, we need to begin to notice that when we are bored, when we are whiny, when we are focused on what is not perfect, when we are stressed, when we are angry, when we are broke, when we are in conflict, the devil is primed to attack. We may choose what is wrong in those situations because we think it will help us feel better. And that is one of Satan's oldest tricks. Meanwhile, the hard work it would take to get out of that situation, to go into the promised land, to work through the desert, that just seems so lame compared to what Satan is offering. So if he can make us feel unhappy, then he is succeeding. The devil typically attacks third. By convincing us that we're great. I mentioned a moment ago that we can easily read stories like these in the the wilderness wandering. And begin to think that those people, they were really bad. They were really ungrateful. And I mentioned there's a danger in that. That we start to miss that these things aren't written for them. They're written for us. Their story is over. But we have a story that's still unfolding. Because the devil will use our attitudes towards warnings and cautionary tales to affect our own spiritual state. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So when we begin to think that we stand... We begin to think that we're immune, we're doing great. He says, you are primed to fall. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. The devil works by convincing us we're great. And that, that is the context of verse 13. Verse 13 is probably a verse that is familiar to you. That's the reason that it's important that we know that no temptation that we encounter is different from what is common to man. Everybody has experienced and continues to experience what we do. They are common to man. And that means that we can grow from learning about what happens to other people, like these people who lived long before us. And it also means that we don't have any right to point fingers at them when we face the same dangers and temptations. The point is they can teach us what to do and not do. The commonality that we have with them means we can learn and grow from them. He also says in verse 13, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God says, I'm going to protect you from a temptation that's too strong and I'm going to give you a way of escape so that you always have the opportunity to not sin in a temptation situation. But if we are too proud to take temptation seriously, we are ripe for a fall. That's the way the devil attacks. Convincing us we are great is one of Satan's greatest tools. It's how he trips Peter up. You remember Peter when Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. And and Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. He also looks around and he says, they may all deny you, but I will never deny you. It is amazing that Peter could hear from Jesus what he was going to do and say, that will never happen to me. I'm different from everyone else. This is the way that the devil trips up so many of the kings, like Saul and David, like Solomon, like Asa, like Isaiah. Kings that start out really great, usually they're humble in the beginning, and then as they have some measure of success and blessing from God, as they get some experience and they get to be kings for a little while and they figure out what they're doing, suddenly they become proud and there is a fall. People who think they're great think that the rules don't apply to them. You know, bad things may happen to other people, but they do not happen to me. I am different. I am unique. I am special. And especially is this dangerous because it leads us to not listen to anybody. When other people warn us, hey, watch out, you're headed in a dangerous direction, we just don't listen. You know, after all, I'm pretty great. I don't have anything I need to learn. So we begin to think, well, I'm just, I'm just a little smarter than everybody else, or just a little better than everybody else. Or, you know, they just don't know what they're talking about, or they're just trying to hold me back. They just don't like to have any fun. What we're saying is, we know best, and other people can't teach us anything. And when we begin to notice that we are dismissing other people and their warnings and their good-intentioned statements to us, when we're overly confident in our own judgment and our own abilities, the devil is primed to attack. That's what he does. He convinces us that we're great. A fourth way the devil typically attacks us is he builds resentment toward others. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, Paul talks about this as a work of Satan. One of Satan's favorite tricks is to use our hurt and anger to embitter us toward other people. When they hurt us or do wrong to us, then we just can't seem to get over it. He wants us to grow resentful and hateful toward others. It is a seedbed of evil. In fact, I want you to listen to how Paul describes it Ephesians 4 and verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So Paul is saying, Be done with your anger quickly. Don't let the sun go down on it. Don't stay mad. Don't let your anger become habitual so that you keep nursing it and brooding over it. But I want you to notice why. He says in verse 27, Give no opportunity to the devil. The NIV here has don't give the devil a foothold. Don't let him get a foot in the door. Because when we are angry, and when we stay angry, we're just more likely to sin. This is a dangerous state. Sometimes it's not just the anger. It's the failure to resolve the anger. We let anger fester, and we feed it, and we talk about it to other people, and we brood over it. And Satan gets a foothold. He gets to work. And what happens as Satan gets his foot in that door and he starts to advance on us is that we start to resent other people and we start to tear them down. It dominates our thinking. And if you've ever been deeply hurt this way and you had a trouble letting it go, you know what I mean when I say that you can't be happy because you can't stop thinking about it. It just focuses all your attention. It's like a mental bruise that we keep poking. And in time, if that's unresolved, we begin to hate. And we have a set of people that are just on our bad list. We just can't stand them. Don't praise them to us. We don't want to hear it. We hate them. This is how Satan attacks Cain about his brother Abel. Cain is jealous of Abel, and pretty soon he can't think about anything else. Can you even imagine how resentful and how angry you would have to be to murder your own brother? Cain is consumed, and then even after he sins, he seems unrepentant. He's just arguing with God, my punishment is more than I can bear. This is the trick that Satan uses with Saul and David. Remember, Saul feels so threatened by David that it drives him crazy, almost literally. He is super paranoid and suspicious. He thinks everybody is secretly helping David. And it leads him to some acts of really ridiculous policy and really unnecessary violence. I'm thinking particularly of him killing the the priests in the pursuit of David. It ruins Saul's life that he cannot learn to peacefully coexist with David, That's the way Satan works. When we begin to feel this way about others, where we are resentful and hateful, it completely derails our spiritual growth. So we talked a couple of weeks ago about the fruit of the Spirit. We talked about love and joy and peace. And when you feel resentment toward other people, you don't feel love and joy and peace. You feel hatred and sadness and turmoil. That's how you feel. And if you've ever talked with someone who is full of resentment and hatred, it is so obvious. They have been hurt, and they cannot, or maybe they will not, get over it. They can't see reason. They're not fair. They're not objective. You talk to them in a calm, measured tone, and they get angry because the resentment has taken over their hearts. And very often, they end up acting out of their pain. Maybe they don't murder their brother. Maybe they don't run their kingdom into the ground, but they say ugly things, they criticize, they tear up churches, they tear up families. So when you notice that you have been wronged or hurt or you have become angry, it is time to pay attention. It is not a time to make major decisions about your life, about your marriage, about your kids, about your church. It's not a time to say everything you think. It is a time when Satan is primed to attack. That's what he does. The devil typically attacks by building resentment. And the fifth thing I want to say, the last one we're going to talk about tonight, about the typical attacks, the greatest hits of the devil, is that he sows doubts about God. Sometimes the devil just straight out attacks our trust in God and just hits it head on. I want to go back to Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning Uh, and talk about how Satan does this here in Genesis 3, where I I think this is a rather obvious occasion, uh, but there are some things here that are a little more subtle than we might at first let on or at first acknowledge. Genesis chapter 3. I want you to watch how Satan works here in the form of the serpent. Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So I want you to notice some of the things that Satan says here. In verse 1, he asks the question, did God actually say? You can hear in that. Really? Did God say this? And of course, he's got his facts deliberately wrong. Did God say you can't eat any trees? Can't eat the fruit of any of the trees. And of course Eve corrects him. And when she describes how God has laid out a punishment, we'll die if we eat of this tree. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. I mean, come on, die? No way, what does that even mean? They've never experienced death in any form. God knows that when you eat of it, he says in verse 5, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him knowing good and evil. You see what's happening there? He is saying, that's why he gave you this silly rule. God knows that you'll be like him. God is scared of you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He is trying to hoard all these things for himself and keep you from experiencing something great. God just doesn't want you to have the good life. So when you hear a command from God, I mean, did God really say that seriously? Is he going around telling people they can't eat fruit? This is ridiculous. God's just scared. He just doesn't want what's best for you. Don't listen to God. Have the good life. He's crafty. In fact, he says specifically in verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Notice how he mixes truth and lies. Some of it in my reading even sounds like a tone of voice, just questioning. Did God really say? Just poking and prodding and seeing where you're vulnerable. You'll not surely die. Well, in one sense, that's true, at least for now. You won't die at that very moment in a visible, physical way. You'll be like God. Well, it's true in one sense, right? You'll know good and evil. That's true in multiple senses. You'll know what good and evil are once you eat that fruit, but you'll also know and have experienced evil for the first time because you'll have committed it, and it's not as great as you think. Does God know what will happen? Well, yes, God knows what will happen, but the implication is that he is scared of what will happen, and that is bogus. So this is what Satan does. He sows doubts about God. There are lots of areas where we are called to believe things that have questions or difficulty surrounding them. They are intellectual challenges. So just for example, we'll have two passages, and we'll have to ask the question, how do we reconcile these two passages so we see both of them are true without them contradicting one another? Or you might ask a question like, how could God be three persons and yet one being? And there is an intellectual difficulty to that. But what the devil does is not just say, well, here are some odd questions, some some things that are hard to reconcile in your mind. He tries to sow doubt about God under the pressure of something we want to do. The danger comes, not when we try to sort out all the intellectual challenges, the danger comes when we doubt God because we want to do something that we suspect he has forbidden. And that is an age-old trick. We want to do it, And so Satan works, not just by telling us, do it, do it, do it, but also by saying, the God who told you not to, why do you believe in him? Why do you trust his word? How can you be sure? Is it really best for you? And so time after time, he chips away at our faith, and he sows doubt. So when you notice that you're beginning to doubt God or his word, especially in an area where you want to do something you know is wrong, when you are wanting to rethink something because you want a different course, when you want to join a certain group or leave a certain group or do a certain thing, just know the devil is primed to attack by sowing doubts about God. So these are the devil's greatest hits. I want to say a couple of things before we're done here. I want to remind you, he offers us what we desire. He makes us feel unhappy. He convinces us we're great. He builds resentment toward others. He sows doubts about God. Don't forget that as Satan promotes these conditions in us, he will use lies. He's the father of lies. Don't forget that as he promotes these conditions, he will use people. In fact, if you listen carefully, you will probably be able to detect in people who you talk with the very lies and voice of Satan. You will be able to hear those are words and ideas that Satan uses to try to get me some to do something that God has forbidden. But I also want to remind you that Satan uses combo moves. It's not just one of these. Sometimes he'll use several of them all at once. So, for example, when Ahab sees Naboth's vineyard, he sees something he desires. And then when he can't have it, he gets so upset that he won't eat any food. He becomes convinced he's unhappy. He'll never be happy until he gets the vineyard and then he convinces himself that he's so great, after all, he's the king, he deserves it. How dare Naboth tell him no? And he becomes resentful toward Naboth to the point that he becomes convinced that Naboth should die. Most of the major falls in Scripture, the major sins in Scripture, follow that pattern. They are combo moves. So, I want to encourage you tonight to consider your own life and ask this question to yourself. Just how is Satan working on you right now? What is beginning in your life and your heart? What are his strategies for you? And I want to remind you, he has a plan. It's vital that we remember the mental battle here and prepare for it. That we develop the strength not to fixate on a certain thing that will not be productive not to fixate on what we can't have, not to fixate on our hurts or our discontent or even our own greatness. These are the devil's greatest hits. May God help us to resist him. Remembering that promise, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Would you pray with me about that? Oh God, our Father, we thank you so much for the time that we've had to open your word and think about your will for us and our great adversary who opposes us and wants to draw us away from you. I pray, Father, that you will help us to think soberly about our lives in light of what we've studied and thought about so that we know that we are trying to follow you and that we'll not be willing to listen to the voice of Satan. Particularly, Father, we we pray for contentment and for peace so that we can resist these temptations knowing that uh, the things that we sometimes struggle with, the, the hurts that we have and pain that we have, and the resentment that we sometimes feel are not productive emotions for us to live out of. Help us to remember, Father, that there are some things that uh, we can't have and desires that we should not fulfill, and that yet these things you have forbidden and closed off to us for our own benefit and for our own good. Help us, Father, to pursue you by faith and to discipline ourselves so that we follow you even when things might make us frustrated for the moment. Father, I pray that you'll help us in this time of difficulty in our nation to have the patience to wait for things to clear up. And I pray that you'll help us to trust you, to trust our leaders, and to continue to do what's right in the everyday situations we face. I pray, Father, for the endurance and patience that we need in a time like this to continue to let our light shine to those around us, those in our homes, and those we encounter in whatever way we do. Father, we thank you so much for blessing us with a family of like-minded believers. and We can gather and we can remember one another. We can encourage one another. And I pray, Father, that the time will come when we can soon be together again. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.